Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario, the Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joel Wolfond. What up? Well, lots up, lots up around the NBA uh, between the playoff series that are ongoing and some news trickling out of Charlotte that James Borrego, who has been the head coach there for four years, has seen 10 win improvements in each of the last three seasons and uh, just coached a Hornets team that I don't think many people saw finishing with a winning record in an improved Eastern Conference to a 43-39 and record and a top eight offense has been fired. Wolfon, what are your thoughts on that? Justified? surprising indifferent i think it's like a classic case of a middle of the road team not understanding where it's actually at or should be expected to be at in the development curve a charlotte franchise owned by michael jordan being in a situation (laughs) where they don't know where they are in the no come on i mean i don't want like maybe they end up with a coach that fits their vision better or something but just Looking at it on its face, it, yeah, it looks to me like a classic case of this is why mediocre teams stay mediocre mm-hmm. because they just get this itchy trigger finger. They want results now, now, now. And then there has to be a fall guy when the roster, like I don't even th- think that this roster performed to expectations. I think they exceeded expectations yeah, this season. Yeah, that's what I'm confused about. And the, the defense was really bad, but like look at the defensive personnel, man. And look, I, I'm not... I don't think Borrego's a perfect coach and there were Hornets games you could watch this season where I would have like literally no idea what they were even trying to do on defense. And and that is a result of like a lot of tinkering and they're playing and experimenting with all different kinds of stuff. I mean, they're, they're dropping in and out of zone, like sometimes mid possession, they're showing hard, putting two on the ball, they're switching everything. Like there's just a lot of different stuff that they're trying to do. And I think it's there's a fine line between being super versatile defensively and just throwing shit at the wall because nothing's really working. And I feel like a lot of the time the Hornets just tilted over into pure chaos. And even the times when like the defense was effective and there were stretches where it was effective, it was kind of just like, wow, I still didn't really know what they were trying to do. They were just scrambling like maniacs and somehow it was working. So you could point to that and be like, they didn't have a strong identity on that and uh, of the floor. Like it was really just unclear what they were trying to be or trying to do. But again, it's like, I don't know what they were supposed to do, especially in terms of like the interior defense. Like they didn't have rim protection, right? It's Mason Plumley behind him. You've got the six foot six PJ Washington playing center in small ball units, or it's like Montrez Harrell, who obviously has nobody's idea of a rim protector. And so a lot of the the tinkering and the chaos, I think, was 
in response to that lack of rim protection and just sort of having to find a workaround for it. And it's, I, I wrote a piece like middle of the season about the, the teams around the league that were playing big minutes without a traditional center on the floor. And it was like pretty much every single one of those teams was struggling defensively when they were doing that. I think the only team that wasn't was the Warriors. And we can get into that when we talk about the yeah. Warriors Nuggets series. Might obviously be because that's... their quote unquote non-traditional center is one of the greatest defensive players in the history of this game. Yeah. So I think, you know, you look at this Hornets team that even like there are certain small ball teams like, you know, the Raptors, if you want to call them that, uh, because they don't have a tradition, a quote unquote traditional center, they're still not a small team, right? Like they still have elements of secondary rim protection and ways that they can prevent opposing teams from getting to the rim in the first place. And like the Hornets didn't have any of that really. So I just think in, in a way they were kind of drawing dead on defense. And I just don't think it's fair to put the blame for that on Borrego. And then you look at how well their offense performed and the type of development that they got from a bunch of their young players, you know, Miles Bridges first and foremost. I don't know. It seems kind of nuts to to make him the fall guy, to lay this at his feet when I feel like he did get this team to basically overperform. But I don't know. That's that's my early feeling. And I guess we'll see when, when they figure out who their next coach is going to be and what the team looks like next year in terms of the personnel. For now, it's just very much feels like one of those things where it's like, this is a, a pretty mediocre team that for whatever reason thinks it should be better than it is and is making a kind of rash decision to fire a coach that I think is actually pretty good at his job. Going into last year, especially like LaMelo's rookie season, you know, they, by the end of the year, they, yeah, they've, they looked like a mediocre team, lost the 10, nine play in, but I'd say going into last season, they were far below mediocre on paper going into that season and ended up finishing the season looking mediocre. And then this season, I guess the expectation was to kind of be mediocre and they were that, if not a little better than that. So to me, they exceeded expectations again. Like I said, top eight offense. You mentioned it, some of the development, like with Miles Bridges, who I said, I believe should have been the most improved player this year. Also, just like the development across the roster. Okay, like LaMelo obviously is a great player, but there's something to his player development too. PJ Washington, like there's a bunch of guys on this team that I think have gotten better under James Borrego. There's a guy that when he took over as coach, you know, the expectations were a little out of whack at the time. It was Kemba's last year, and obviously they were very mediocre. But then once Kemba was gone, and and like I was saying, they kind of went into this new I mean, Jordan's Hornets probably wouldn't call it a full rebuild, but retooling, whatever you want to call it, kind of relaunching uh, of where they were going after Kemba left. Borrego was in a tough spot, and I think his team's consistently overperformed. So if you want to hold the defense against him sure he, he deserves some of the blame for that as the coach but I would have liked to have seen him get a chance to coach a team with personnel that could have given him a chance to be at least mediocre on the defensive end because in every other facet of the game he had pretty much proven if he had anything near the requisite talent and tools at his disposal that he could at the very least prop up something mediocre you know to slightly above mediocre and I, I realize how underwhelming that sounds but guess what? When you're the Charlotte Hornets and this is what's 
at your disposal, that's actually a pretty successful season or a successful tenure for an NBA head coach. I'm also just confused because I genuinely thought, as much as I was clowning on Jordan at the beginning of this pod, and as much as I clowned on on the Hornets when they actually signed Hayward and until he got hurt again, it was looking like a good deal. So you know, I was wrong about that early on. It has except the, that except that the injury history and right. like the, so, the yeah. injury red flags are a big right. part of the reason yeah. that so it wasn't you. a great you're, signing in the first. You're right. Time. I was right all along, but <laughs> no. I but do look, know how much I hate defending your takes, Cash. Right. But but yes, the the Hayward's history was a concern for me when they gave him that contract. My point of it is is that like. For the most part, I thought that these last couple of years, they did start to operate in a way where they looked like a team that did understand where they were and were like in it for the development and like to see where this could go, right? And so it's, it's disappointing. I mean, I'm I'm a neutral. I don't have a vested interest in the Hornets, but I can only imagine if you're a Hornets fan, how disappointing it would be to see that the team kind of still hasn't outgrown that mentality where it does seem like they still want to skip steps and look. Unfortunately, the reality of the NBA is you can't skip steps if you're not in a glamour market. And there's very few of them. True, glamour, like true, true, true destination markets in the NBA. Those teams can skip steps because they're always going to be a destination if they have cap space, sometimes even if they don't have cap space. For Charlotte and most of the league, you can't skip steps. And yet the Hornets continue to want to do that despite all of the evidence in their past seemingly serving as learning lessons that they can't do it. And so I don't know. It, it's got to be yeah. frustrating for Hornets fans. I, I think, I think it's a bad move barring, you know, I think it's a bad move until we find out who the hell the next coach is. But even then I'm, I'm pretty well, confident. It's also it's like, be a bad move. I, I think the big caveat is that we don't know. And maybe some reporting will come out and clarify this down the road, but like, we don't know what was going on behind the scenes. Right. Yep. Was it the players in the locker room who were pushing for this change because they were clashing with James Borrego, like I feel like a lot of the time when a, a surprising yeah. move like this happens, that is what's behind it. And you know, if if there is a, a relationship dynamic that's untenable with the cornerstone players for this team, which is basically, I mean, it's Lamelo Ball and Miles Bridges, right? That's the unknown here that is maybe like propelling the decision making. Yeah. Um, and I, the only... obviously, I can't speak to that. So yeah, and even in that case. Um the only thing I could even think of in that case would potentially be LaMelo, even though I, there's been no reporting on that. But the only reason I say that is because to your point, those are their two foundational guys. And I can't imagine any scenario in which miles bridges who was just had, you know, one of the m- most drastic improvements from one year to the next that I can remember a player having who got more of the ball, who got yeah. to create more from like, I can't imagine that guy after this season being like, you know right. what? I don't like a season James in which he was really empowered to spread. Right, his wings. That's what I'm saying the, to, to then uh, at the end of the day, be like, you know what? I really hate what this coach Borrego's doing with like, no, I, th- there was almost no chance miles bridges wanted this, but don't you think then there's almost no chance that this decision would have been made without some input from those players, especially given bridges is a, like about to become an RFA. And I mean, maybe him being an RFA gives, gives the Hornets a little bit more security there knowing that they can match any offer sheet and I think they're probably going to end up maxing him out. Right. So maybe, they maybe should. they just, maybe they just don't care, but I would think it just seems really rare in this day and age for a move like this to get made without the sign off of yeah. a team's, you know, foundational players. Well, look, while you could never underestimate Jordan's greatness on the court when he played, 
You can never underestimate his impatience or restlessness off the court when it comes to him as an owner, team executive, whatever. And so while I agree with you that it is ludicrous to consider that they might have made this decision without um, consulting their two foundational young players, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they may have done that. But anyway, I think we're Borregoed out here. Not nearly as Borregoed out as the Hornets were apparently, but we are Borregoed out. So I do want to transition to another story. We had already touched on the Devin Booker injury a couple days ago in our last episode. It has since come out that he's reportedly going to miss two to three weeks due to that hamstring injury, but we have talked about what his absence means for that series, and I wrote a bit about it. People can read about it on the app um, and where that series goes from here on out. Since then, Milwaukee, the other finalist from last year's final, lost one of its stars when Chris Middleton suffered a sprained MCL during a Game 2 home loss to the Bulls. And he's going to be out for the rest of the first round at least. I think they said he'd be reevaluated in two weeks. So um, we'll have to see what happens there. My thoughts on it are that at least in the short term, to me, this is more in line with the kind of injury and the series where, like you were saying at the time for Phoenix, New Orleans, where you're like, obviously this is bad for them, but I really don't think this is like they're in the danger zone here. I think they'll still win this in six or less. And I thought New Orleans can give them a run. I think this series is more in line with that for me, where I'm like, obviously, yes, Middleton hurt, losing Middleton hurts. But I just think, the Bucks are so much better than the Bulls. And I still, unlike the Phoenix-New Orleans series, where you can make the case that New Orleans might have the best player in the series now, depending on how you kind of see the Ingram-Chris Ball thing, no one's going to be saying that about Milwaukee-Chicago, even with Middleton out. Clearly, obviously, the gap between Giannis and whoever the next best player in the series is, is very large. So the Bucks, to me, still have the best team with by far the best player in the series. Losing Middleton hurts. I don't think they're in any danger this series, but I do want to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think I feel pretty similarly about it to how I feel about Suns Pelicans, where I think, you know, there's a very good chance that the Bulls get one at home and we're going back to Milwaukee and it's two all. And I kind of think even if that does happen, I'm not going to be too stressed from the Bucks' perspective about them, you know, actually losing the series. I think, you know, they they have found some answers for Giannis that I didn't think they would. I think Alex Caruso just deserves a massive shout out for the job that he's done, basically taking on any assignment, Uh, you know, not just as like an individual defender, but as a help defender. I mean, wreaking havoc on the weak side, taking the Giannis assignment in some cases. And I think that's played a big part in sort of disrupting Milwaukee's offense, like, which has, not been good so far in this series. A lot of that's been self-inflicted, which we can talk about, but I think the Bulls have shown that actually they can defend the Bucks reasonably well, and they certainly showed in that game too that they can score on the Bucks. although I feel like that took a pretty special shot-making performance from DeMar DeRozan after you went on that rant last episode <laughs> about how well, no, actually, he might. He might shoot 6 of 25 again, even though he said he wouldn't. That that rant aged quite well, my friend. I'd, I'd, I'd like to point out two things about this. First of all, I did also begin that rant by saying, as I wrote about earlier this year, I believe his game is more immune to playoff struggles now and that I, I generally thought he would be better and he should be better. Hmm. The point of that rant was that it was hilarious that a guy who had previously shot 23.8% in his last playoffs, last play-in game, after now shooting 24% in the second of those two games in a row, was saying, well, there's no way that could happen again, where it's like literally it just happened the last time you were in this situation. 
But I digress. Yes, he had a great game. And I'm happy for him that he did because he deserved the season he had. He deserves to have some good playoff moments. And the game, the refinements in his offense have led him to a place where he should be having good offensive games in the playoffs. Right. I do think, you know, that game revealed a couple specific pressure points that the Bulls can hit against that Bucks defense. So obviously the, the DeRozan shooting is one of them, like the mid-range pull-up game, which the Bucks have shown they're willing to concede. Even against a mid-range assassin like DeRozan, they seem comfortable with that being what they give up. And it's interesting that, like, th- that's true even when it's Giannis getting put in the screening action, which... That was what, like, it's not like DeMar was going after Brooke Lopez in the drop, right? Like, he was calling up Giannis into the pick and roll, like, time after time after time and burying mid-range jumpers. And it was like every time Giannis would creep up a little bit higher in the ball screen coverage. But for the most part, he was still dropping back. And I think that's interesting. We, we talked about it mid-season when the Bucks were playing without Brooke Lopez and, and having to play a lot more Giannis at five and trying to figure out how they wanted to use him defensively when he was playing center. And they did a lot of different things. They tried switching with him. They tried having him hedge. And I feel like what they landed on, like the, what, what they wound up doing the majority of the time was basically just have him play that Brooke Lopez role, which he's really good at, but we know what that gives up. Uh, and, and and we saw that in game two. And it's not just, you know, DeMar. It's also like whether it's Zach Levine coming off of pin downs burning that drop that way. Or, you know, maybe even more importantly, Vucevic in the pick and pop game. Those are kind of built in looks. I feel like that the Bulls are going to have against the Bucks defense where, yeah, if they get hot and they're, they're knocking those shots down, then they can win a game, especially with, you know, the ability that they've shown so far to kind of keep the Bucks offense under wraps to a certain extent. So that's why I'm like, yeah, I, I feel like they could have another game like that where the shots are going down, where they're taking advantage of the built-in looks and it's 2-2 because of that. As far as actually winning the series, I, I sort of still have faith in the Bucks defense holding up enough and them getting, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that their offensive process improves because I feel like it just... I don't know. I don't think it's been particularly exceptional against the Bulls so far in this series. So I think that they'll have enough offense, even without Middleton, to get across the finish line because I don't think the Bulls can continue to do offensively what they did in that game too, you know, for the rest of the series. You know, like to win three more games, essentially. So that's my feeling about that series. I think thinking about the long-term effects of Middleton potentially missing time, and if it bleeds over into the second round, that's where I start to get really worried because we're talking about a team and we discussed this going into the playoffs about how their one potential Achilles heel or their biggest potential Achilles heel was going to be that half court offense where they were kind of already operating with a bit of a deficit in terms of half court shot creation and ball handling. And now losing basically their best pick and roll ball handler, their best pull up jump shooter. I mean, if he has to miss any time in the second round, and I'm assuming at this point that the Celtics are going to be the team that's waiting for them there, you know, maybe not out of the question that the Nets totally turn things around, but if it's Boston waiting for them in the second round and they're already kind of clunky half court offense loses basically their best 
initiator, I think that's curtains for them, honestly. So I feel like they need him back and close to 100% to have any hope of cracking that Celtics defense in round two. That's that's my feeling. So I think there are, there are ways that the Bulls can put them under a bit of pressure. I don't worry about them losing that series. I worry about them getting out of the second round uh, if Boston is the team that they need. And I, I would have some concerns about that even if Middleton was there, to be perfectly honest. Losing Middleton is much more of a big picture thing where I just think it drastically lowers the ceiling they can get to. And I was going to say I'm not sure, but I am actually pretty sure that they cannot get to the championship ceiling they need to get to if Middleton's not in the lineup. So um, one, they need him back. But two, then it's like, even if they get him back in a couple weeks, like, I don't know, how quickly can he just get right back up to his usual standard coming off mm-hmm. a sprained knee? They're in trouble, not against Chicago, I don't think. But yes, in general, this spring, they are in trouble. Yeah. Well, I, I'm trying to even think about, okay, how do they rejigger their rotation? You know, like who's sopping up all those Middleton minutes? like a combination of Pat Connaughton and Grayson Allen, I guess. So those guys, like like Connaughton can do a little bit, and he's, he's a good off-ball player. Grayson Allen, great shooter. You're losing a ton of on-ball reps is, is the bigger issue, right? Like For a team that was already missing guys. a lot of that. Right, that's what I'm saying. So it's like, I mean, that's a ton on Drew Holiday's shoulders. And we've seen at points he can take on that load and be – actually pretty devastating one-on-one scorer and when the pull-up jumper's going which it was for most of the season they can be fine without Middleton on the floor but I don't know I'm curious to see sort of how they account for the loss and what the offense looks like I feel like it's probably more inverted pick and roll with Giannis handling right like they got to go to a lot more of that with Grayson Allen and Connaughton setting those screens and flying out to the three-point line like maybe it's you know, some Giannis Brook Lopez pick and pop and and go after Vooch. Although the Bulls have actually been using Vooch as a primary on Giannis some of the time. So I don't know. They, they just have to get a little bit creative. And I'm actually pretty curious to see how they do that. And I feel like not that the Celtics defense is a, a good primer or a good example of what we would theoretically see against the Celtics defense. Those two defenses are playing different sports, basically. But I, I will... <laughs> I will be interested as like a, a way to project forward if Middleton is going to miss part or all of that Celtics series. I, like looking at how the Bucks offense adapts and seeing if there are some things that we can pick out and be like, oh, this could work. This offense without Middleton's shot creation becomes completely dependent on Giannis and shooting, which obviously they are already very dependent on. But to the max now, it is all on Giannis's finishing, driving, and the shooters around him. I don't think that's a recipe for success either over four rounds. You know, that that can get you through a round against the Bulls. It's not going to get you, to your point, past the Celtics or past three or four teams. All right. Why don't we take a break, come back, and talk about the matchup that we want to talk most about today, which is Wolves-Grizzlies. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, Wolves-Grizzlies, 
2-1 series lead for the Grizzlies. Not sure uh, we've gotten to this point in ways that anyone could have expected. Wolves win game one. Grizzlies come back and throttle them in game two. Game three in Minnesota, the Wolves go up 26 early in the game, and the Grizzlies whittle that all the way down to seven within the same quarter. But then in the second half, the Wolves go back up by 25 again, and the Grizzlies come back again pretty much all in one quarter. But by the end of the game, finish Game three on a 50 to 16 run. They, I believe, won the fourth quarter 37 to 9 to take control of the series, reclaim home court advantage, have a 2 1 series going into game four, which would still be in Minnesota. The obvious talking point, and there are many of them, but the obvious, most glaring one after game three is that for the third time in four post regular season games this month, Carl Anthony Towns ended up with more personal fouls than made field goals. We talked after the play-in game about how frustrating his performance was in that game because of not just the gambles he was making or taking in foul trouble and then complaining to the refs after committing very clear fouls, but just like the, the pressure that put on his team. He responded in game one of the actual playoffs with... Honestly, one of the more encouraging Towns games I can ever remember. Just like the force with which he was playing on the offensive end and the aggressiveness he had. I was not used to seeing it from Carl Anthony Towns, but it was, I even tweeted about it. Like it's fun to watch Cat being this like engaged and aggressive offensively because yeah, there are not a lot of people on, on earth that can guard him at his size with his offensive abilities. For whatever reason, games two and three, he reverted to the play-in Cat, which is just, we're being quite frank, awful. And once again, while in foul trouble, just making some really dumb decisions and taking some weird gambles, great players can have terrible games, obviously. They can have a couple bad games in a row even. Like, like look at KD right now against that Boston defense. But great players or players that are supposed to be superstars cannot have three out of four postseason games like Cat just had now. It is one thing to be, you know, Kevin Durant being shut down or like really affected by a great defense. It is another thing to be as disengaged or out of sorts or allow yourself to be, I don't even want to say taken. I think he's taken himself out of there. Like it has been monumentally disappointing and I can't find any defense for Kat right now. And then for after the game, him to answer a completely valid question. Okay. About, what he was seeing out there, or from his perspective, what he thought about the Grizzlies' defense was taking him out of game so far. For him to roll his eyes and hit the reporter with a next question to that very valid question about how pitiful he's playing right now was absolutely cowardly. If I'm a Timberwolves fan, I'm beyond disappointed. If I'm one of Carl Anthony Towns' teammates, if I'm a Timberwolves player, I don't trust this guy as a leader on the court. Like, Anthony Edwards has more show-upness to him in big games, it seems, and is, like, more ready for the moment than Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony Towns is an unbelievably talented player. But at some point, you've got to look at it and be like, is this guy good enough? And I'm not talking about talent, because I think everything has to play. And when you're asking, is a player good enough in the playoffs? It's not just, does he have the talent to do it? There is a lot that goes into it. 
And we're getting to the point, if we haven't already got there with Carl Anthony Towns, and you look at the entire body of work, where I'm not sure we can say he is good enough to get it done based on everything. I don't know whether you want to call it like competitive spirit on the court, mental toughness. I don't know what it is. You even mentioned off air, I think last week when you were texting about how it's like, you really want to like Cat, but it's sometimes hard because of all the whine. That's something too. Like he's doing a lot of whining for a guy that's taking a lot of dumb fouls. And I don't know, you just add it all up. And it's like, I, I, I don't know what else to say. This guy has flopped mammothly. And I know the series isn't over. Their season isn't over. He's still a young-ish star. Like, this is by no means going to be the defining moment of his career. I hope it's not. But I don't know. Talk me off a ledge here, as you usually would when I am railing against a star this way. You are usually uh, somewhat of the voice of reason, whether it was Paul George in the past. But I cannot remember a star player doing this. And it's like I said, it's one thing to have a bad game, bad couple games. But to allow yourself to just not be part of it. And can, okay, maybe I'll just, I'll cede the mic to you now and I'll go off more later, but I do have a no, couple please, more things. please go on. Right. You have another point I, to make. make I it. do. I have, a, I have a couple more points to make and it's that Towns, I don't know if it's like that he's a front runner or that he just seems to be, when it comes to basketball and like his feats in the NBA, seems to be a little too easily satisfied, again, for a player that should be as good as he is, for a superstar. What I mean by that is like, Cat is literally the type of guy who, after saying he's the greatest shooting big man ever, which by the way, when it's all said and done, he might be. Offensive talent-wise, it's insane what he does at his size. But he's the type of guy who literally will think that winning an All-Star Weekend three-point contest is the required evidence to say he's the best shooting big man ever. He is the kind of guy where wins game one of a series on the road and seems to think that's enough. It's the kind of guy where after, while getting blown out in game two of that same series, looks at it as like, well, don't worry, they got to come to Minnesota. Said that out loud is the guy who thinks then just going up 25 or 26 in game three of that series is kind of like, see, told you. they get like At every step of the way, it seems like this guy just thinks it's like, okay, well, I'm satisfied with this. Or like, see, I told you. But it's like, dude, you haven't actually done anything yet. Why are you just like resting on your laurels or so satisfied with a job half done all the time? You haven't actually proven it yet. And this is something, and I'm gonna be honest, Jimmy Butler signed him. And forget even teammates, Joel Embiid has pointed this out about Carl Anthony Towns too. It is not just a Jimmy Butler being Jimmy Butler thing. There is a reputation around the league with Carl Anthony Towns where he does not have it. Whatever you consider it, Carl Anthony Towns doesn't have it. Now I'm done. All right, so I'm going to attempt to add a little bit of context to all of this stuff and talk you off the ledge, so to speak. First of all, I think... To your point, Towns, to me, doesn't profile as like a number one on a contending team. And I think that's fine. Like, I think he could be an absolutely dynamite number two. And if you're looking for silver linings or long-term optimism as a Wolves fan, I think the hope there is Anthony Edwards grows into that number one. And then that partnership with him and Towns can be really profitable for years to come part of the issue you know you mentioned him potentially being you know the greatest big man shooter ever self-proclaimed and him actually having a case to lay claim to that title it's like a bit of a crutch for him and you see that when you know they run pick and rolls and he wants to pop he wants to pop 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 and you saw in game one hey when steven adams is guarding him that's freaking deadly. He played Steven Adams out of the series in one game. 
Steven Adams is, I don't know if we'll see him again this series. Xavier Tillman's coming off the bench for them now. Steven Adams has not been seen since like two minutes into game two. And that affects the Grizzlies in certain ways, right? They lose his screening, which is really important. Part of the reason I think that Ja really struggled in game three was like he didn't have Steven Adams out there to free all that space for him with those screens. You know, not just like the initial screen to get him going downhill, but also those incredible Gortat screens, uh, the seals that Adam gets after setting the initial ball screen. They lose his rebounding, which is a big part of what made the Grizzlies successful this year, especially on the offensive glass. And it matters that Towns, like his shooting, his gravity, was able to remove an important Grizzlies player from this matchup, okay? At the same time, now the Grizzlies made their adjustment, right? They're switching. And Cat's still popping. So now he's got a switch, and it's like Dylan Brooks gets switched onto him. Desmond Bain gets switched onto him. He's still catching the ball 20-plus feet away from the basket. He's still looking to get to that jump shot. Like, he is not... What, what's the best way to beat a switch, right? It's to slip. How often do you see Cat slip a screen and dive hard to the basket? How many times did that happen last night? I can't remember seeing it happen at all. I don't know if it's actually zero. Like, I have to go back and, like, rewatch the entire game looking specifically for that, but it happened very rarely. So that's that's the thing. It's like, if you're if you're just a number two and you're just there to facilitate everything offensively for the number one on the team, I think Cat's perfect. And there's even a situation where, you know, they there were possessions in which the Grizzlies put Jaron Jackson on him. And in that case, having Cat spot up is great. Like, he's enough of a threat where if Jaron Jackson is guarding him, Jaron cannot be an impediment at the rim. He has to respect Towns' shot. And in that case, I'm fine with him just standing on the perimeter because him just being there doesn't even have to move. Him just being there is helping Minnesota's offense. When he's got Kyle Anderson guarding him, Dylan Brooks guarding him, that's when it's like, okay, you need to be able to do something a little bit more than this. And yeah, like when he would post those those guys up and, and the Grizzlies would send help and he'd wind up just like spitting the ball out. But he's making it easy because he's not catching the ball close enough to the basket to really put pressure on the Grizzlies when they have to go and double him. It's an easy recovery for them because they don't have to go that far. He's not close enough to the basket. And it's been a problem all year, man. These teams that are playing, you know, this a defensive scheme where they're putting their center on Jared Vanderbilt or Jaden McDaniels and having that guy be the rover and they're getting away with putting a forward on cat he he's not he's not punishing those mismatches and it's a problem so i totally recognize all those being issues for the wolves in their current state where they need towns to be their like go-to offensive option and he's not doing it i think if they develop the way that they probably are hoping they will and towns can more just sort of slide into a, a secondary offensive role then that can be totally fine uh, and, you know, to that end, we've seen flashes of superstar potential from Anthony Edwards, including in game one of this series, by the way. But uh, he should not be absolved of blame here either, man. He was totally drifting toward the end of that game in that fourth quarter. And it's, I, I always have a hard time with this, like, how much do you attribute that to the players? How much do you attribute, attribute it to coaching? Because I think there are so many different things that the Wolves could have done to get their offense out of mud in that fourth quarter. 
that they didn't do. It's like so much of time when like Edwards is just like literally hanging out on the wing with his hands on his knees. Is that an Anthony Edwards problem or is it a problem with the coaching staff where they're not running sets to like get him the ball on the move? It's probably a little column A, a little column B. Right. But it's like they had Pat Beverly initiating like 90% of their offensive possessions. And yeah, Beverly had like a really good first half just attacking John Morant one-on-one. But then, you know, the Grizzlies put Tyus Jones on him and Beverly is still trying to go one-on-one and score. And I just, it, it, even with Cat, right? Like this, it plays into it because they're running Beverly Towns pick and rolls and the defense just doesn't really have to stress about Beverly in those situations. Even though he scored a bunch in the first half, they don't care. They're going to give him the pull-up jumper or they're going to give him the lane to drive to the basket especially if Jaron's on the back line, ostensibly guarding Jarrett Vanderbilt, but really just there to protect the rim. Whoever's guarding the screen, like they're, they're just going to stick with cat. Like, and so why aren't you running more D'Lo cat pick and roll or more Edwards cat pick and roll where the ball handler's actually stressing the defense to the point that maybe you can shake him loose. Uh, and I know, yeah, like the Grizzlies were switching, but at least like, I don't know. You're creating a pressure point where I don't think you're doing that running like handoffs for Beverly or pick and rolls with Beverly. So I I think it just like went both ways a little bit where there are definitely more things that they could have done to help Towns actually be more involved in the offense. And there are obviously more things that Towns could have done to involve himself more in the offense. But it's something as simple as like, you know, watch, watch the Nuggets play and look at all the different things they do to get Jokic into good post position, right? Like they run him off of rip screens at like from the top or like flex screens from the baseline. They are constantly essentially putting roadblocks in the defense's way to just give him that little bit of space, that seam that he needs to carve out actual space on the block. And there's so little of that from the Wolves, man. It's like such static post-ups. And I don't think they're doing enough to actually help him get into the spots that are going to be most advantageous for him. That's me contextualizing all of this. The leadership stuff, I don't want to touch just because I don't know. Like No, but when I mean no faith in him as a leader, if I'm his teammate, I mean as like the star of this team leader. I don't mean in like a rah-rah way because first of all, we don't know that and we, he, he doesn't necessarily need to be that guy. I mean literally what he's going to do on the court as the leading star of this team. If you're his teammate, can you say you have faith that he's going to show up when the lights come on, when you need him to show up and be the guy that carries you home? What evidence is there if you're his teammate that you can be like, we got cat, like we're fine. Give it to big fella. Like three times in four games, man, to have more fouls than field goals made. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that it wasn't a really rough game for him offensively. I'm just, I'm just saying as far as like, do his teammates respect him? You know, like, is he a, a, a strong voice and a leader in the locker room? I really can't speak to that. Right. And I, I can speak to what I'm seeing on the court, which is that he's way too passive sometimes. And also that the Wolves don't do enough to put him in advantageous spots, whether that's play designs or whether it's just the guards not looking for him enough. It goes both ways. And I think the real shame of it is that's one of the best defensive games that I've ever seen Carl Anthony Towns play. And I think actually just like as a pure rim protector, maybe the best, like he was so solid barricading the rim. I think he wound up with four, maybe even five blocks. Wolf shot 
uh, Grizzlies shot, I think like four of 10 at the rim when he was in the vicinity, he was doing a good job in like hedge and recover. There were a few instances where they were like pre-switching to keep him out of that ball screen action so that he could help uh, and be a deterrent on the back line. And he actually was doing it. Like Towns has not been an effective rim protector in the past. In that game, he was. I'm talking about like Ja Morant coming downhill at him and him still staying vertical and I think doing his job as as a backline anchor, which is not something you can usually say about Cat. He was great defensively in that game and nobody's going to care. It was it, it all came undone because he just couldn't make his mark offensively and it's a shame. I don't know, man. I, I think the, the real unfortunate thing is like the Wolves should be this great feel-good story. Yeah. Right, and in so many ways they are. They yep. they literally doubled their win total from a year ago. They get that emotional play in win to punch their ticket to the playoffs for the second time in eighteen years. They've already won as many games in this series as both of us predicted they would. Yes, they they go and snatch home court from the Grizzlies in game one with like basically a wire to wire win, mm-hmm. and this should all be gravy for them, right? Like. It, and and the funny thing is like if they had just if they had just lost that game three in normal fashion, whereas like the Grizzlies were just establishing that they were the better team, built a lead early, and the the Wolves tried to chip away but like couldn't quite get back in it, and they just lost the game by eight points or whatever they actually wound up losing it by. I feel like it would be fine. Everyone would still be celebrating this team. I mean, maybe they they'd still be bagging Cat for only taking four field goals in that game, but I don't think. Uh, you know, the, the the embarrassment factor would be cranked up to 12 the way that it is now after after they blew that lead, like you said, not once but twice. So it's just unfortunate that that's the way that it goes sometimes where like them being in this series, them going up 26 on the Grizzlies in the first place is actually really impressive and really hard to do. But they shot themselves in the foot one too many times and now, you know, they're staring at, uh, a series deficit after taking a real emotional gut punch in uh, a game that by all accounts they should have won and by all accounts they had to win you know to to yeah. have any hope i think actually do you, do you want to talk about this from the grizzlies perspective also a little bit because i think there's no chance they lose this series but i also think looking ahead we've seen a lot of the red flags that i was kind of curious if we were going to see come to bear for them in the playoffs. Like, I, I think this series has actually borne a lot of that out. And I'm interested in what that might mean for them moving forward. You mean with respect to the way their offense relies on uh, transition and like their half-court struggles? I think specifically, all right, before we go any further, let me issue not a retraction, but like a correction to the point that I was making on the last episode about benches in the playoffs. Right. Where, yeah, I kind of made this point, eh, benches, like you don't really know what you're going to get from them. It's sort of just a crapshoot in the playoffs because all these guys are just bench players and you have to expect a lot of variance from them. Sometimes there's a team that actually has a good bench and the Grizzlies have a really good bench and that their bench won them a ton of games in the regular season. And Tyus Jones and Brandon Clark in particular swung that game three, were instrumental to that comeback. And their bench is so much better than Minnesota's uh, that... In a matchup like this, it does actually matter. And I think there is a, a reasonable expectation that one bench is going to vastly outplay the other, and that's going to make a difference. So there's that. I think the biggest thing is 
and this is this is kind of the point that I was making when I talked about you know their off season and how I didn't love it and how yeah they had this great hugely successful season but I would still feel a lot better about this team if they had Valanciunas instead of Adams and if they hadn't given Grayson Allen away for nothing and I got some blowback for that because people hate Grayson Allen but I'm looking at this Grizzlies team and it's like outside of Desmond Bain who are the reliable three-point shooters I mean Dylan Brooks is streaky dude you said you said reliable you said reliable so I'm gonna say it's only Bain that's that's what I mean. Like he is doing so much of the heavy lifting in terms of their floor spacing, and they don't get it from anywhere else because, like, yeah, Jaw can knock him down sometimes. Brooks, who said streaky, Jaron Jackson, DeAnthony Melton, both insanely streaky. Like they all come out below average on balance, and that's been you know kind of one of the unfortunate downsides of this great breakout season that Jaron Jackson has had on the defensive side, like offensively, he's just not hitting threes like you would have hoped that he would. And that leaves Bain basically as their only reliable floor spacer. And I think that like the Wolves have really taken advantage of that. I thought they had a really good defensive game plan against Ja in that game three. They kind of shut off his water and it took him like credit to him because he found the adjustments as the game went on, but he it took him a while to figure it out, right? And I think he he didn't really get going until he actually started like attacking more off of the ball, and and attacking off the catch after guys like Jones and Bain were creating advantages for him. Like when he was trying to force it, uh, they were loading up on him, getting hands in his driving lanes. Like he was driving into multiple bodies, and they were able to do that because I, I don't think the Grizzlies have the shooters, so that's still a big concern to me, like looking ahead, you know, if like looking ahead to a potential matchup with the Warriors where, uh, okay, is Steven Adams going to like re-enter the fold in that series? I think probably not. Like I was saying off the top, it's like, okay, suddenly they lose this guy that was contributing to a lot of the things that were making them successful this season, specifically the offensive rebounding and generating extra possessions. If they're not able to do that anymore and they have to play, you know, more, one shot half court basketball. I don't know if they can hang. And that's that's I feel like despite the fact that I think they're going to win this series and this was an amazing comeback for them, that's something that I definitely am worried about um in terms of like their long-term playoff prospects. Yeah, I don't think they have the offensive goods to hang in the playoffs for more than a couple of rounds and especially when you have a looming matchup with the Warriors coming up with the Suddenly healthy and full throttle Warriors coming up. I wouldn't pick the Grizzlies to hang in that series, let alone hang much more than a, a couple of rounds. Um, but, you know, to your point about what we were saying about the Timberwolves, where like it should feel like more of a feel good story. The Grizzlies are very much that, right? Like uh, as much as the offensive issues will derail them and keep them from competing for a title this year, this is a 56 win team with one of the most exciting promising young stars in the league in jaw and a guy who you know for as much as like the things i was saying about cat i think jaw is very much the opposite where like jaw can give you a bad game and still like last night was actually a perfect example i think he shot five of 18 with seven turnovers like he wasn't especially off like he was not good by any measure that you but there was still something about the way he was playing that game and attacking and being relentless and i and i don't know like there was still something about it where you could watch that game and be like, 
this guy's got it and he just goddamn wants it, you know? And like, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it was to the detriment of his team, but there, there was something there and something you can just, that you can expect with Jaw night in and night out, you know, in contrast to what I was saying with Cal when it's like, well, I don't know. Is it going to be there tonight? Is it not? And so I think that while, yes, there are definite offensive concerns and reasons why the Grizzlies are not going to contend for a title this year, the way that a 56 win team usually would, they've at least done something so far in these playoffs where like you can still come out of it being like, okay, this was a feel good year for them. Where to your point, the, the Timberwolves should also feel like that. And because of the way they've kind of carried themselves and let things become unglued here, it doesn't feel like that. And yet we sit here and say all that. And it's a 2-1 series with game four coming in Minnesota. We'll see what happens. We've already gone uh, a little longer than as usual than, mm-hmm. than we wanted to today. But um, I think there, there are a couple series we haven't touched on yet. But to be honest with you, those ones I think we can leave for another episode. We're going to have plenty of time to talk about the Warriors, these playoffs. So I don't necessarily think we have to go there. Heat Hawks, we can save for another episode if that if this series is even still going by the time we do another episode. But before we get to the fan shout out and sign off today, I do want to give you the opportunity to talk about your favorite frauds. You know, I went off on Carl Anthony Towns, but I think it's rare that people get to hear the full score and, and feel the full scorn of a Joe Wolf on rant. And you specifically asked for time at the end of today's podcast to talk about the Utah Jazz. So please, well, even though we've talked about them a couple days ago and both mm-hmm. kind of went off about wh- how fraudulent they are, you wanted this opportunity and I, I'm very excited to hear you go off about it. So please, the floor is yours. Give me your thoughts on your favorite frauds dude i don't even really have anything new to say like i said it all last episode i ended it by saying i'm done with this team i've been defending them all year playing the wait and see game and i'm done with them and they still somehow found a way to anger me after i'd already basically given up like i i I get it they're just like at the end of their rope you can see it you can feel it so I guess that is excuses it the right way of putting it, like to know that they're just sort of over it and that's why they're playing this way. Does that make it better? I don't know. But Donovan Mitchell over the last two games has played legitimately some of the worst point of attack defense I have ever seen in the NBA. Like embarrassing. Just getting blown by time after time after time. Terrible footwork, terrible positioning, and has the gall after the game to come out and say, it really starts at the defensive end. I thought we started defending better when Pascal came in, which is to say when Gobert went off. And did the Jazz get back in that game when they went small? Yes, they did. Did they get back in that game because they were defending better? No, they did not. The reason that it made sense and continues to make sense actually moving forward in this series to play small more often is because... They're not getting stops with Gobert on the floor anyway. And you know how I feel about that. I don't think that's Gobert's fault. But it gets to a point where if you're allowing that much dribble penetration, he just can't keep covering for you on the back line. When he has to you know, play between the rim and the corner almost every possession, it doesn't matter. So you might as well put your best offensive lineups on the floor because you're not getting stops anyway. But to single that out and say that like, the defense that you played when Gobert came off the floor turned the tide of the game, which is like a really subtle way of throwing him under the bus. And Gobert has not been very good in this series. Like, I'll grant that. But come on, Donovan. I I just really hope that this is... And this is still not a good look for him. 
you know, if, if he's just doing this cause he's done and wants out of Utah, it's still not a good look, but I still do hope that if, or when the change of scenery comes, that we actually see him start to give a shit at the defensive end once again, because this has been hard to watch. Yep. No, well said. And, and like I wrote after uh, their game two loss in Dallas, you know, for as much as people want to read into like those trust issues I wrote about on the offensive end and that we talked about on the last episode between Donovan Mitchell and all, all of their ball handlers really and Rudy Gobert and um, whether Gobert should be trusted and how he might actually hurt their offensive ways. I said then, I'll say it again. Donovan Mitchell hurts their defense way more than Rudy Gobert hurts their offense because there are still things Gobert does offensively, whether it's his, uh, screening, offensive rebounding, vertical gravity, like rolling all that that have some positive influence on the offense. Whereas Donovan Mitchell at his worst defensively, which is what he's been defensively for much of this season and especially in the playoffs, there is no redeeming quality that you can find defensively in him. And so if you're going to be as petulant as Donovan Mitchell is, it seems, with Gobert and with his negative impact at times on the offense or whatever, like, please look in the mirror and realize your weaknesses are actually far worse than his and are a bigger drag on this team than his i got nothing left to say about the jazz i assume you don't either we are going to get to that actually one you know what i want to add and it has nothing to do with the jazz it's kind of just going back to that towns rant because it was like as i was going on it i started thinking about it it's funny because if you remember i guess it was last year or maybe in the summer when like the simmons trade stuff started first coming up i think we both talked about how not that we thought it would happen but that we both talked about how like minnesota was actually like a perfect fit basketball wise for ben simmons and the fit between simmons and towns actually makes some sense basketball wise and as i was going on that rant about cat it actually made me think of ben simmons because those two guys are similar to me when it comes to two guys who seem to like think we should be impressed with certain things or certain things are accomplishments when like they're really not and so whether it was like i said towns seemingly thinking like winning game one undid everything else or like when they're up game three and he's mic'd up and it's like oh i told them they gotta come to minnesota and it's like dude the game's not over yet man maybe chill it reminded me of like last saturday and i don't know if if you saw this but ben simmons at practice got nick friedel the espn reporter nick friedel was there at practice and like ben simmons says to him like get make sure you get this or something and then he just dunks the ball but it is like the most routine dunk you could ever throw down for a professional basketball player. And it's like after practice. And to me, it was just so on brand for Ben Simmons where it's like, hold on, wait, did you actually think people were going to be impressed by this? Or people were going to be like, oh man, Ben Simmons just dunked after a practice. He really is ready to like come in and impact. It was so tone deaf to me and so much of like, yo, read the room. No one's impressed by this. And when I was going on that cat rant 20 minutes ago, it actually, as I was saying, it reminded me of Ben Simmons. And I just thought it was ironic because I think basketball wise, they actually fit together really well. And I'm starting to think mentality wise, it might be the worst pairing in the league because both guys would feel accomplished going up one nothing in a series. They end up getting their barn doors blown off. Anyway, that's my random uh, inconsequential tangent to end this show. So uh, again, Wolfon, unless you have anything else to add, should I, should I just get to the fan shout out right now? Let me just add, because we <laughs> didn't get any time to talk about uh, Heat Hawks or Warriors Nuggets. And I did kind of promise on the last episode that we were going to get to all four series that we didn't talk about on Wednesday's episode. Warriors look terrifying, like absolute juggernaut right now. And given, you know, the kind of shaky health status of some of their biggest potential competitors kind of looking like maybe the championship favorite right now 
based on what's happened the first week of the playoffs and the injuries, I think they should be the betting favorites to win the title right now. They're not yet, but they should be. Yeah, obviously, like the the most exciting thing is just the lineup that they, I wouldn't say stumbled upon because I think even like as we saw them getting healthy, I feel like everyone's kind of curious about what this lineup was going to look like. And uh, it looks pretty damn cool. The the Steph, Poole, Clay, Wiggins, Draymond lineup. And, you know, just to very quickly take it back to what I was talking about uh, in the Hornets conversation about how all these teams are, are like playing big minutes without a traditional center on the floor and they're all kind of getting roasted defensively the Warriors have been and continue to be the exception to that rule because Draymond Green is absolutely ridiculous and his ability to handle the Jokic assignment without needing too much help you know there's still help like there are extra bodies shaded his way there are stunts there are digs etc but not a lot of hard double teams and one-on-one Draymond is like, you know, more than holding his own to the extent that one can against a player as big and skilled as Nikola Jokic. And I think, you know, coming into that series, I said like the the most interesting thing, the biggest battleground is going to be, can Jokic make them hurt in those minutes when they're playing small enough to offset what the Warriors small ball lineups are going to do to Denver's defense. And the answer so far is a resounding no. Um, so it's, it's unfortunate for Denver and for Jokic who had just a magnificent season and is now kind of like getting torn down like his MVP candidacy, uh, because they have no hope against golden state. And I don't know. I, I, my only thing that I want to say on that is like, I think it's okay to acknowledge. I I thought Jokic was amazing in game three. I thought in games one and two, he actually was pretty disappointing. And I think it's totally okay to acknowledge that he was really disappointing in those first two games. And for that to be all, that's all you have to say. You know, yeah. doesn't it doesn't require like, you know, somebody criticizing his performance in game one and two doesn't have to be a mark against like his MVP season. And it doesn't require this like full throated defense of him. Like, no, actually, like he just has no help, which is sort of true. Like the supporting cast is pretty bad, but also he was kind of disappointing in those first two games and that's fine. Yep. Yeah, agreed. And he was magnificent in game three and they still lost because the Warriors are that much better. Oh yeah, Heat Hawks. I just... I just yeah. feel bad. I'll just add quickly because like, I feel like the last thing I said about the heat and it was sort of facetious of me, but I, I, I said that they were frauds and now we like, haven't even talked about them and they're up on the Hawks and playing really good ball. And I shouldn't just have me calling them frauds be the last thing I said about them because they're playing really well. Their defense is so good and um, that they're switching, kind of taking the Hawks offense out of what they do best is not surprising to me. Jimmy Butler going for, 45 points and hitting four threes is pretty surprising to me that's I I didn't think that he still had that in him but it was really good to see yeah the Heat and the Celtics uh very much looking like the top two teams in the East as their seeding suggests despite the fact that uh, we didn't necessarily think that coming into the playoffs whoa whoa whoa. you you're you're putting them a cut above Philly with the way the Philly's been playing correct really yeah we can talk about that on the next pod by which time oh, the God, Sixers yeah. might, have already, might have already probably should have booked their ticket to the second round already. As for Draymond, all I want to say is that the man who gave birth to the term 16-game player just continues to show that he embodies the term more than any other player. With that, I think we're done here. Ironically enough, the shout-out I was going to give today, you mentioned uh, getting some flack for your Grayson Allen 
uh, ran a couple weeks ago, whenever it was. The shout out I actually wanted to give was to John, who goes by at AidenJohn27 on Twitter. His Twitter profile says he's in New Haven, Connecticut. It was, it was maybe two weeks ago now, um, just the, before the playoffs started, or maybe the week before. Anyway, he, he replied to us on Twitter saying that uh, he it was great to hear all the Grizzlies love on a national stage. But then he put, aside from Wolfon's absurd Grace and Allen take, which I didn't even remember uh, until you just mentioned it. So ironically enough, you mentioned that, and, and John ends up being the fan shout out for this week. So John, thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, providing some feedback there on Twitter and the usual call out to all of our listeners, whether this is your first time listening or your 236th time. We know you're out there. If you haven't reached out yet, please do reach out at Joseph Cacharo on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U on Twitter, Joe.Wolfon at the score.com, Joseph.Cacharo at the score.com via email or hit me up on Instagram. Joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Till one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.